Hello, and welcome to the No Man's Land podcast. We're joined today by someone whose work I have personally taken uh, interest in for a long time, and that's Mr. David Goodhart, author of works including The British Dream and The Road to Somewhere. So, David, welcome. Please uh, introduce yourself and tell us a bit about your work. Um, yeah, thanks for inviting me. I have been a journalist most of my adult life, um, worked at Financial Times, and then I set up uh, Prospect magazine in the mid-90s, which was at least initially kind of associated with um, with broadly sort of new labour, um, centre-left ideas. It's really a, a, a current affairs monthly. It wasn't too political capital P, but... Um, I guess in the course of editing Prospect, I became more sceptical about some of the aspects of the centre-left worldview, although I remained uh, a member of the Labour Party. In fact, I only left the Labour Party a couple of years ago, um, partly through some of the things I wrote at Prospect, particularly an essay in the early 2000, 2004 called Too Diverse, which looked at the tension between solidarity and diversity. It was reprinted in The Guardian, caused a bit of a furore. And that sort of got me got me interested in in the whole issue of race and immigration and multiculturalism and so on. And I ended up writing a book called The British Dream. I left left Prospect in 2010, um, then worked at a couple of think tanks, worked at Demos for a while. I'm now at Policy Exchange, the main centre-right one. I wrote um, a more recent book really about the value divides that have uh, led to Brexit, Trump, European populism, those the value divides which I think have become so central to our politics in the last few years called the road to somewhere I talked about the people who see the world from anywhere the people who see the world from somewhere it's one of the reasons why the book did quite well that those labels kind of caught on struck a chord I've actually just finished writing a, a kind of follow-up book called head hand and heart uh, which is sort of road to somewhere Part two, it's about um, the um, overvaluation, the allocation of too much reward and prestige to one form of human aptitude, cognitive ability, and the way that cognitive class has become too dominant anywhere is sort of, you know, a, a rather overlapping categories here. Brilliant. Well, thanks very much. And I think especially um, some of the sort of values stuff in some ways and anyways is very relevant to some of the work that we do in this podcast but the um the your work on the on solidarity in the welfare state sort of in, um inspired me to do a, a dissertation which drew quite heavily on really? uh, on that idea but um so that's why it's sort of so good to to have you on. So I think to maybe set things up, would mm. you mind giving your sort of insights and your knowledge, just giving us a general overview of the the sort of the state of British politics over the last twenty to twenty five years, sort of where we are now and how we've got here through mm. the the prisms of the work that you do. I think that period can be sort of divided into two in a way. I mean, there was the the, the post Cold War. I mean, for kind of the, the early nineties to, I don't know, the, the financial crisis and perhaps a bit after marked a kind of high point of what what has come to be called the double liberalism represented by both centre-right and centre-left parties, but perhaps particularly by New Labour and the New Democrats um, in the US. But that, I mean, I think the, the, the end of the Cold War was absolutely central to, to the shift that took place the great opening one might think of it as sort of the great opening of our you know, rich democracies where we had dramatic increases in global trade dramatic increases in, in in the wealth of some poorer countries notably china and india 
dramatic deindustrialization, rather the continuing story of deindustrialization, which of course really goes right back to the 70s, 60s even, but it was kind of the final stage, you might say, of this period is sometimes, you know, Danny Roderick, the economist, calls it hyper-globalization. It was a kind of globalization that, that, you know, that benefited large corporations, that benefited the financial system, benefited mobile hire professionals. It started to accumulate losers. Um, not, not immediately. I mean, we had, a, I mean, you know, New Labour and the New Democrats and indeed parties of the centre-right that were governing through this period were often very successful. There were more winners than losers, I think, for a long period of time. Economic growth was, was pretty um, rapid in the 90s and early 2000s. But we had this, as I say, it was a kind of double liberalism. We also had the beginnings of the, kind of the domination or the over-domination, as I see it, of the, the kind of liberal graduate class that people I've called the anywheres. 25, 30% of the population were not just talking about a sort of small metropolitan elite, we're talking about a very large group of people who tended to um, have a set of views that, that kind of reflected their own experience. They tended to be in favour of mobility. They'd often been mobile in their own lives, particularly in the UK because of our mass residential um, higher education system. So people who were comfortable with mobility placed a high stress on autonomy and and openness and were, were kind of happy broadly speaking, with, with relatively rapid change and social fluidity, they could ride the, ride the waves of these, of liberal modernity, if you like, uh, relatively comfortably. They had what the, the U.S. sociologist Talker Parsons calls achieved identities, identities he saw as on a spectrum between ascribed and achieved, so anywhere it's tend to have overwhelmingly achieved identities meaning their sense of themselves comes from their own achievements, passing exams when young, going to good universities, having decent professional careers and so on. So they could that meant that they, their, their identity was kind of portable. They could fit in anywhere. They could live in the edgy inner city and be perfectly comfortable. On the other hand, if, like many of, of the people I call the somewhere, people who t- tend to be less well-educated, uh, tend to value security and familiarity more, um, and tend to have identities that... Um, were more were, were connected more to group and place, and that means that somewhere identities are more easily discomfortable discomforted sorry by the rapid change of this of this hyper globalization period so both economically and to some extent culturally that group the somewhere group about fifty percent is larger and numerically although much less influential politically and culturally than the anywhere group started to started to suffer started to to sort of see itself more. I mean, it was a very heterogeneous group. I mean, it includes, you know, middle-class farmers in the West Country and, you know, working-class Northerners. I mean, both anyways and some ways often very, very, very sociologically heterogeneous, although tending not to be so heterogeneous educationally. I mean, this is essentially a kind of educational stratification we're talking about. But so you had... So you had this flowering. So you had an immediate post-war period from the early 90s onwards. You had China joining the WO in 2001. You had the great opening economically and to some extent socially and culturally too. And it was a happy story for a while. But as I say, like kind of nickels at the bottom of the boat, it started to it started to accumulate more and more losers. And you started to get a pushback in continental Europe. In some ways it was it was reflected, it, it was more successfully reflected in continental Europe because of their proportional representation systems meant that you had you've had populist parties in many parliaments in Europe. Um, not only in parliaments, in governments indeed, in six or seven countries now, going back 10, 15 years, even longer in terms of representation in parliament. So the, 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 the sort of pushback against hyper 
globalization, of which populism is just one form, but it's perhaps been the most sort of dramatic political form. The populist parties have been kind of in, in some ways absorbed into the into the kind of bloodstream of continental European countries in a way that they weren't in the US and the UK. So, and you know, and, you know, this is one explanation for why we had Brexit here and Trump. The two easily the two most dramatic sort of populist events, if you like, were, were Brexit and Trump. Both of them in the Anglo-Saxon world. Both of them in first past the post, essentially first past the post political systems, which didn't allow that absorption of sort of populism, you know, you know, and what I call decent populism, you know, as it were, the legitimate populism, you know, non, you know, these are not xenophobic racist parties, although they may have fringes that are that are more nativist, but you know, they're they're, they're parties that are representing the losers from hyperglobalization. So you, you know, so you had. You had the pushback in 2016 um, with Brexit and Trump. You had Salvini in Italy. You know, you've had different manifestations in continental Europe. We're still in that. We're still in that sort of period where dominant um, market liberal and and socially and culturally liberal elites. Um, I mean, they're still there. They still dominate our societies and, to some extent, our politics. But they've had they've they, they've been on the defensive in in the recent period. And and I think. It's. I mean, I think the jury is still out, actually, on whether there has been a kind of recognition that what what I call, I mean, what characterised politics in the hyperglobalization period was it was it uh, was anywhere over domination. Now, I mean, uh, I always have to emphasise this because otherwise people can caricature these views. But I mean, both the anywhere and the somewhere world view are perfectly decent and legitimate, at least in their mainstream forms. And the, the value divides I talk are all, talk about are also, um, or rather I've, I invented the, these labels. I didn't invent the, the, the worldviews that the labels are really representing. I mean, they really are there if you look at British social attitude surveys and if you look at attitude surveys in most rich democracies, you'll find um, one can argue about the exact percentages that I attribute to these different value groups, but they are, I think they're ballpark figures that do do stand up to scrutiny. And also one should remember that this is, it's not quite as binary as it sounds. It isn't just anywheres versus somewheres. As I said earlier, there are lots of different kinds of anywheres, lots of different kinds of somewheres. There's a big in-between a group, about 25%, who share almost equally the, the two worldviews. We had the pushback against anywhere over domination, you know, and you know, anywhere domination reflected in the policy choices that our societies took over a period of 10 or 15 years, but pretty open immigration policy, uh, an embrace of new kinds of um, cultural and identity politics, happy pooling sovereignty and in, 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 in increasing that pooling in the European Union and other international bodies, um, you know, family policy, for example, that is essentially about um, making it as easy as possible for both parents to spend as little time in the family as possible, you know, so that um, and you know, all of those, uh, you know, and obviously also very, you know, very open economic trade policies, um, um, oh, massive expansion of higher education, you know, relative neglect of um, of FE and and technical. Uh, technical education and apprenticeships and so on. I mean, something, something, something's been starting to be done about that now. But I think actually, perhaps, I mean, obviously, the, the Brexit vote was was a was a great shock. Perhaps it shouldn't have been, um, but and I think did reflect the the alienation of many people from that uh, anywhere over domination. 
both both an economic and a cultural alienation. But having said that, I mean, I, you know, I think one can overdo the polarisation. I mean, it was an extraordinary and unexpected um, result, and, and it has sort of thrown all the cards up in the air in some ways. But you know, I, you know, we shouldn't mistake the Twitter nation for the nation. I mean, I think we, you know, it is very easy. You know, Twitter and social media has handed a kind of megaphone to the loudest and the most extreme voices in some ways. And I think, you know, most Remainers were moderate Remainers who, you know, at least grudgingly accepted that they'd lost the vote and that we should leave the European Union. Most um, leavers are moderate leavers. Um, you know, they didn't want necessarily kind of dramatic no-deal Brexit and so on. Um, but our politics has struggled to, to, to find a way. We had that extraordinary sort of three years when we were we, we were arguing and failing to find a, a way through. I think partly because, you know, these are... You know, these are big value differences. It's much harder to come to a consensus, come to compromises on value differences than it is on traditional socioeconomic differences. Um, mm-hmm. And of course, I, I mean, that, that is perhaps the overarching theme that I, that I haven't mentioned or is implicit in what I've said is that we have shifted so much as the sort of the pushback against hyperglobalization obviously has an economic aspect to it as well, I and mean, very importantly, economic one, and perhaps prompted by um, the, two, the, the 2008 financial crash. But it's not just, uh, it, it's, been a, it's been a, you know, it's sort of value politics, socio-cultural politics, as it were, eclipsing to some extent the more traditional socio-economic class-based politics, socio-cultural mm-hmm. value-based politics kind of eclipsing that. Just a final point, uh, I mean, I think one of, one of the really fascinating things about politics now is that we've got this very, we've got a new establishment, we've got, we've got a new section of the political class in power. I mean, sort of, you know, represent, you know, the Boris Johnson, Michael Gove, Dominic Cummings triumvirate represents, uh, you know, quite a new force in British politics in some ways. You could argue that we've had a very high level of continuity, both in both in policy, kind of ideology, values, and even in personnel, the kind of people running top levels of the civil service or politicians of centre-left and centre-right. You've had a very high degree of continuity, really going all the way back, say, to, to John Major. I mean, the sort of post-Thatcher British politics. John Major, all the way through, I would say, almost to, to Theresa May, you had the same... I mean, at the December 2019, not only did we have a, a new coalition, a much more working class-based Tory party... Um, a large section of the middle class kind of move. Well, um, Labour has been becoming a more kind of liberal graduate middle class party now for for a couple of decades. But you know, further steps in that direction. And you had so you had not only that new coalition of voters, or somewhat new coalition of voters. You had, I mean, a, a whole a whole new sort of group of people in charge. And th- I mean, this is this is come at some price, you might say. I mean, they, they, the, 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 the group that won the, the 2019, ele- 2019 election are very inexperienced. They had a huge programme, ambitious programme already, which was obviously you know, not only to complete Brexit, but to you know, the whole levelling up, dealing with our grotesque regional inequality, you know, grotesque regional inequality that has been exacerbated by many of the kind of anywhere policies of the last 20 years, like the mass expansion of higher education, sucking, you know, some of the, you know, the brightest 20, 30% brightest kids from you know, working class towns all over Britain have, you know, have left at the age of 18, 19, and in many cases never gone back. And we sort of celebrate that and then wonder why we have this grotesque regional inequality. And so, you know, finally, we seem to have a government that was actually going to do something about that. And then along comes COVID, 
then uh, you know, then the BLM flurry, and you know, and I, and they are a very inexperienced bunch. And I think for for reasons I completely understand, they had to be pretty ruthless about in order to get Brexit through. They had to be pretty ruthless about some of the the, the, the Tory grandees, if you like, you know, people like Jeremy Hunt, who actually would have been you know quite useful to have had people like that during the COVID crisis. But um, and I think anyway, it's, it'd be very interesting to see. Um, and of course, you know, because they are new and because they believe, I mean, they believe many of the same things that the previous lot believed. I mean, you know, the previous lot didn't want the grotesque regional inequality that they um, that they presided over, but they had helped to create it and didn't seem to know how to do anything about it. The kind of the, the new sort of Cummings fraction. Uh, as well as the old lot, we're in favour of lots of R and D, and you know Britain is a great centre of science and education, and so on. So on some areas, but of course they've been they've broken with the the kind of international with the aspects of the internationalism and liberalism of the previous consensus. Which is not to say they're illiberal, but they they just have you know different views about uh, about national sovereignty and and its importance. You know, and, and I mean I have some some sympathy with their position on those things. But they they are very inexperienced. They're, they're a very sort of thin layer, as it were, on top of a, a, an establishment and a political class that is still essentially pretty hostile to them. I'll bring Stephen there, if I may, to just talk, talk about some of the, uh, the main sort of currents in, in British politics at the moment. So David's given us a fantastic overview of how we've managed to get to where we are now. And it seems to me that there's a... The sort of the triumph of the market at the end of the Cold War, the predominance then of double liberalism, and that's seeming to to me to carry on up until around the time of the financial crisis. And then since then, we've been kind of, I suppose, it's the era of austerity for want of anything else, without anything really sort of taking its place. So, uh, Steve, what would you say are some of the, the main things sort of going on in? British politics at the moment to build on what David's sort of introduced us to there? Well, I think David actually summed it up rather well um, toward the end of what he was just saying there, in the sense that over the last sort of few years, and probably with quite a long, long sort of tail leading up to it, we've seen this new kind of divide that we started talking about as kind of Brexit identity, and maybe on the podcast more recently, we talked about culture wars, and identity politics, things like that. It's clearly that that divide and that kind of cluster of issues that is the final of our politics right now. Most recently, we saw some of the debates around Black Lives Matters and things like that that have, that have become, again, um, wedge issues. Certainly, that is one sort of big, big sort of prism on British politics at the moment. But the other one that David also mentioned is that, that still, yes, the economy and economic considerations are still in people's kind of minds. And more recently as well, um, we've been thinking about COVID-19 and and, and people on those issues, I think, are still more in the same place. So people care about the health service, they care about the state of the economy, and they're probably looking as much at the competence of um, the people governing them as anything else, certainly in the middle of a, of a pandemic. So if I had to sort of try and sum it up very briefly, I'd say we have a sort of two spheres at the moment. Maybe one is around kind of competence on some of those issues that, where people aren't so ideologically divided, and the other is as... Uh, they've described is this kind of identity politics that has come from the different experiences of the anywheres and somewheres or however else you want to describe it. All right. So I think one of the, um, the one of the main driving forces behind this perhaps move towards identity becoming more central to sort of politics can be looked at in terms of integration. 
and immigration. So, David, how would you say that moderates should engage on issues around migration and integration? So we've seen this sort of building up of, uh, to some extent, resentment for people who don't feel that they've had a voice and a pushback against that from people who are generally considered to be sort of in a pretty liberal centre politically. But to, to look not just at the political sort of centre as in the, the, the liberal sort of um, by ideology, but the moderates and finding a centre ground. So how do you think moderates should engage with issues around migration, integration, culture and ideology? Well, I mean, these are sort of the central issues of our of our times. You know, they've taken over to some extent or sit alongside the, the older issues of social class and state versus market and, you know, redistribution, tax levels, levels of public public spending and so on. I mean, those obviously haven't gone away, but, the, you know, these are the, the value issues. These are the... Uh, and, and like I said, I mean, one of the problems with the, this kind of new form of politics is it's, it's, it is harder to split the difference on value divides and it is on, you know, whether you tax the rich 50% or 70% or, you know, you can sort of come, you know, you can decide to compromise on 60% or whatever, but it's slightly harder if you're talking about the future of the family or how open your society is. But yeah, we obviously, we, you know, we, we, we have found ways of talking about these things. We must talk about these things. I mean, I think on the immigration question, you know, clearly, you know, we've had consistent for, for about the last 20, 25 years, well, since 97, when the, the kind of new, the new phase, the modern phase of immigration really took off when New Labour came to power in 97. And, you know, we've had historically unprecedented levels since then. About two thirds of the population have consistently said this is either too high or much too high. It is true um, that the salience of immigration has reduced in recent time. And I think that is partly because people think that because of Brexit, free movement is going to be curtailed, as indeed it, it, it will be. Some progress has been made towards politicians eventually accommodating to what was a, a pretty dominant preference of, you know, of, of, of voters. Of, uh, How well um, do you think that this country has managed the issue of migration and specifically integration relatively successful i mean i think we're a more open society we have we're a more mixed society i mean you, you i don't think you have any equivalent of our mixed race groups mixed race ethnic groups the rapid most rapidly expanding ethnic minorities in the uk i don't think you have any equivalent of that in the rest of europe or certainly not in the bigger countries despite the fact that that politics didn't respond to the, le- the legitimate desire of most people to want a more to want more modest levels of immigration so there was frustration about that and it hasn't been well managed and you know the the uh, i mean it's such a shame i think in the way that you know the tories came up with this completely unachievable target of tens of thousands that was discredited well actually if they'd had a target of people granted permanent residence that might have made more sense and indeed they'd have actually hit the target i mean before um, well, in, in, in recent years, uh, there's been quite a sharp reduction in the in the numbers of people granted permanent residence. But anyway, there was a feeling, a legitimate feeling, that, that the door was too, was 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 somewhat too open, and, and and the politicians were very slow and reluctant, in a way, I think, to 
to bring the level, levels back down, partly because we are a very open society and, you know, we have a lot of people coming here as students to, to work and so on. But we, our systems have been quite uh, poor. I mean, you know, we still don't really have a real grasp of who's actually coming in and leaving the country. It's all, a, a lot of it is still based on a, on a, on a survey, an extraordinary small sample survey, the International Passenger Survey. We don't have ID cards, as they do in much of continental Europe. So there are, there are certainly sort of grounds for people to feel anxious about too much openness and too much sort of fluidity in our, in our society, in our big cities in particular. But despite that, I mean, it, it, we have pretty well all of the main indicators of, of racial prejudice and discrimination. We've seen continuing liberalisation, obviously partly generational thing. People grow up with People from different ethnic backgrounds, they used to, they know them at school or whatever, then, you know, hostility and prejudice falls away uh, in uh, some of the time anyway. So, you know, I think that that has been obviously a, a good development in many ways. I mean, in, in terms of into the, the whole sort of debate about integration, I mean, the debate about integration tends to um, fall silent really until the next um, terrorist outrage. And then, you know, we will have an, we'll, we will um, scratch our heads about how it is that these, you know, apparently um, well integrated lads from from Bradford or wherever um, you know, blew up people on a bus. And there'll be some hand wringing about that, and then we'll sort of forget about it again. I mean, in a way, for perfectly understandable reasons. I mean, to, integration in liberal societies like ours is very difficult. To, it's not in the gift of, of politicians to create integration. Um, you know, you can't tell people where to live. You can't tell people where to send their kids to school. Although you can nudge these things, and and I think, I mean, I, I think not enough thought has been given to it. I mean, we still our, our school system is becoming more segregated, not more integrated. Uh, there are some some worrying trends and in in parts of the country. It's a very different picture. In you know, you know, we have the mill town problem where we where we do have really pretty divided towns and you know, the parts of you know London, Manchester, where you do get pretty easy easy mixing between different groups and and, and people much less sort of conscious of, of racial difference. I mean, this is in a way one of the kind of, I think, rather sad things about BLM is that it's kind of, it's a re-racializes everything. You know, everything, you know, everything becomes, you know, hugely oversensitive in a way. And it makes it makes a kind of a more relaxed conversation about, I mean, I've always been arguing that, you know, we, we, we ought to kind of learn how to talk, talk about kind of ethnic difference in the same way that we talk about class difference i mean sort of you know without without embarrassment you know it's just there are there are different classes there are different ethnic groups that doesn't mean to say that they're you know everything about them is sort of hard and fast but people come from a certain place they you know tend to have have norms that are probably in some cases largely shared with the norms of mainstream british society in some cases perhaps particularly with the the muslim minority somewhat different norms some more traditional, more conservative, more patriarchal, uh, and so on. And and you know, we just we want a more open and confident conversation about about these differences. And I th- and I suspect that I mean, even though Black Britons are actually tend to be certainly Caribbean Black Britons tend to be amongst the best integrated and indeed you know most likely to part in the case of Black Caribbean males most likely to partner out uh, either either with white British women or or um, women from other British minorities. But, not, you know, um, 
nonetheless, it's sort of, I think, uh, you know, a lot of the conversation about BLM has, has, you know, it's almost, it's, it's almost sort of deliberately trying to push people out of comfort zones and challenge them, even kind of threaten them in some ways, people from the, from the ethnic minority. Do you think that's necessary to, like- to sort of push a conversation on to some of the issues around racial inequality and integration? No, no I don't think it needs to be conducted in, in such a, a, an aggressive way, um, and partly because we have actually made a huge amount of progress in many of these areas. Uh, and, you know, that has not been reflected at all in the BLM conversation. I mean, all the, you know, the, the millions of words have been written just in the last few weeks by BLM people, BLM supporters. I think we're thinking about it the wrong way around. We should be extending comfort zones to everybody. You know, whether, you know, if you're talking about, you know, should all men be made to feel uncomfortable about about being a man in relation to arguments about feminism? You know, should all white people be made to feel uncomfortable about white white supremacy or i mean no um, no which is not to say that you know some people you know should be made to feel uncomfortable um you know that we, we you know we do we do need to change we are changing we have been changing i mean quite rapidly actually in many areas but you know this idea that yeah we, we want um we want kind of comfort zones for all <laughs> i think should mm-hmm. be the slogan rather than everything. okay no I, th- I mean i think there's a sort of an uh, potentially an argument to be made for using sort of discomfort potentially as a way to heighten the salience of an issue and have more people reflect on the sort of the situation potentially their role potentially other people's role but i mean i I don't pretend to be an expert and so for that reason i would like to sort of move on to, to asking steve a question about how moderates should engage in debates around race and identity and specifically perhaps around patriotism. So, uh, Steve? We had this conversation, uh, I think, to some degree last week with Sunder Katwala. And just thinking about what David was saying about how the debate has perhaps been framed recently in, in terms of a quite a, a challenging debate, one that makes people feel uncomfortable, and maybe that being a negative thing. But I think the framing that... Sunder preferred and that we spoke about was actually a more positive one that said something like, yes, we've made progress, maybe not enough. Um, but also the sort of fundamental British values are not actually about, uh, are not actually antiquated, are not actually themselves racist. We actually are a liberal and tolerant place and we embrace multiculturalism. And we should sort of strive to be even better at that, a sort of positive framing that way. So that, that's how I would be, I'd be tempted to approach it. And then you get to the situation where that you can have a conversation about all these changes that we want to happen and need to happen without kind of metaphorically burning the flag down. And that gets you the patriotism bit, bit where we can be proud of the bits of British culture and history that have trended towards uh, justice, as it were, to sort of slightly abuse the Martin Luther King quote. Uh, actually, I uh, wrote a, a blog about this with John Denham this week, which was around arguments to, to make to progressives that actually uh, patriotism can be progressive and you can have this uh, positive framing so I, I wouldn't want to miss the opportunity to plug that yeah. oh excellent well done steve so let's talk about sort of culture war again something that we've sort of talked about a bit before causes and consequences now in terms of let's not talk about culture war let's talk about values differences so you david have talked about the somewheres and anywheres and you've touched on that a bit but how does that sort of map on to British politics? Because you said that 
the, the main sort of parties, is it, would it be right to say, have been sort of anywheres, and the somewheres until recently haven't really had a home. Is that a fair way to sort of describe things? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, all, all the mainstream political parties have been dominated by uh, by anywhere values and assumptions. I think that is undoubtedly the case, and uh, you know, and and these are you know these are often quite popular, and these are often quite mainstream. I mean, they're they're, they're most uh, they're, they're kind of based, as it were, in a in a uh, in a group that's perhaps twenty five thirty percent of the population, and certain aspects of anywhere politics are definitely not embraced by um, the people I call the somewheres, uh, by, by a, a substantial minority, if not a majority of the population. But so, but, uh, like I was saying earlier, when unlike in continental Europe, where populism has kind of emerged into mainstream politics through proportional representation, you, know, you only have to get, you get 5% of the vote. And um, it would be interesting to sort of speculate about what, I, I, mean, I think it is possible to argue that, you know, if UKIP had been in parliament, you know, if UKIP had had, we'd had a kind of 5% threshold and some kind of PR system and we'd had UKIP with 60 or 70 MPs, we might not have had Brexit. We would, we would have kind of, you know, we would have absorbed, people would have felt that their, that their interests and arguments were, were being reflected in the mainstream. And I think the fact that, the fact they weren't, I think was, was a failing of our politics in a way. And the fact that, it, you know, it took, it then took something as sort of big and, and radical and who knows, perhaps as undesirable as Brexit. I mean, I, I mean, I, I voted Remain, but think that we should respect the vote. Um, you know, the, the jury is out on what it's going to do to us as a country. Um, but, you know, but it's sort of, you know, if, if anywhere it had had a little bit more emotional intelligence, a little bit more kind of awareness of their own power, I think. And, I, and, and one of the interesting things about British politics now is the extent to which that people have come to an awareness of that, 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 that they did go too far. Um, they did pursue, they thought they were pursuing the general good, but actually they were often pursuing particularly the interests of that of that sort of smaller anywhere faction of the of the society and you know one can sort of think of it as the, the anywheres divided between the kind of admonished anywheres I mean somebody like Theresa May you know who you know who, who ended up trying to implement Brexit you know and on the other hand the, the sort of you know the militant um, you know the kind of AC Graylings, or and actually one might o- almost include in that. I mean, it's extraordinary decision of Tony Blair himself and the and the kind of remaining Blairite rump in British politics, which is not not a not an uninfluential one. Their decision essentially to reject the result of the referendum, I think, it bears some responsibility for what 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 happened subsequently and the fact that we will now have certainly in terms of the kind of language we were using just two or three years ago a pretty hard brexit which could have been avoided i think if they had said okay you know we're gonna to have to leave but you know let's let's leave in a you know in a sort of norway way or, or something like that we um, certainly as a, a podcast interested in moderate politics compromise yeah. center ground have talked quite a lot and sort of lamented the the sort of the reluctance of both sides to, to come together because and I think Brexit although obviously was a binary issue mm. if you do believe as I think it's not too much to say that we do in the sort of democracy that the will of the people expressed in the referendum has to be implemented and respected but that lack of willingness to sort of come together to find a centre ground and it seems to me personally that an EFTA Brexit seemed to fulfil many of the sort of many of the desires of sort of moderate levers, whilst maintaining 
Yeah, moderate Lib Dems and so. moderate Remainers. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, no, it seemed it seemed to me, but the, there seemed to be a sort of a radicalisation of of both sides to either reject the referendum result entirely or to reject any kind of uh, sensible approach to Brexit. And in fact, we did the podcast with Ian Mulhern some time ago, and I mentioned that in my view, the Lib Dems, when they were talking about getting sort of rejecting the, the referendum result and just overturning it, that it was an extreme position. Uh, he disagreed. He said that maintaining the policy of the country for the last 40 years couldn't be characterised as an extreme position when I think it, it can because, on one hand, you have l- absolute leave, absolute remain, and throw into that mix as well the overturning of the of the result. And it seemed to me personally to be a something of a sort of extreme position so one to sort of to to both of you is how we can try to sort of come back together whether we are sort of irredeemably riven apart or whether there is whether this is a an acknowledgement that the the somewheres are now in the ascendancy having been anywheres having had their time is it around language is it around um, a way of doing politics. So that's to sort of the both of you really to sort of see how we can try to sort of come back together. Mm-hmm. Steve, would you like to go first? I've sort of uh, missed you. Yeah, yeah, of course. And then there's a, a huge amount, I think, in sort of embedded in in that question. Um, one of the points that Dave made earlier, I think, is that that a kind of unifying politics has been done done before. I mean, Tony Blair told a unifying story not that long ago. I mean. Thinking on the states, I always think of Barack Obama managed to t- tell a unifying story from the centre. So I think it can be done. The difference now to um, the sort of 1990s or or when Obama was first elected, I think, is that is also the other thing we were talking about, which is the divide being identity politics divide, which is probably hard to find a middle ground on. But we've kind of come back to this in the podcast quite a few times, and I think we've got a few different ways to answer it. We've certainly talked about the fact that maybe you address some anxieties. And so, for example, uh, anxiety on migration might be one kind of anxiety to address. Anxieties on race might be another kind uh, that you can address and stop the kind of polarised debate if you can find a way of doing that. Um, the other thing I think I'd say is the thing that I alluded to a minute ago, which is around, can you find a kind of shared a shared story that, that doesn't blame another side? And so... We spoke to John Denham about patriotism and whether you have a kind of progressive form of patriotism that was much more spoke to a much broader, broader church. So I think it can be done, um, but that's all kind of in theory. And I don't think there's anyone around at the moment who has a kind of narrative the way that some of the politicians I mentioned perhaps did in their time. David, so on to you. Yeah. Is this the um, a sort of a surge in the popularity of just some ways having their time as the, the time of the anywheres has come to a close? Um, no, I mean, you know, both, as I said, both worldviews are, are deeply embedded in our society. Both of them are legitimate and, and they have to coexist. And one of them has been overdominant and the, 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 you know, this is democracy working. The other has pushed back. And we now, you know, we're, we're now kind of in a strange standoff, you might say. I mean, there's no, and, and it's right that we are. I mean, we don't want, you know, the, the boot shouldn't be on the other foot. We don't want, you know, having had 25 years of anywhere overdomination, we don't want now want to, have somewhere over domination um we need to find bridges we need to find common ground and and there is i think there's plenty of it out there i mean the, 
you know, there are lots of issues where these value divides don't really count very much, you know, I mean, like the kind of um, climate change or, or even, you know, just basic sort of, you know, reform of the public services, you know, sorting out social care. You know, these are the things where, uh, and indeed, I mean, I think while we've seen much greater divisions the last 15, 20 years or so over these value issues, partly as a result of the great opening of our societies, um, so, you know, issues of borders and immigration and, and integration and so on have become much more salient because of the opening. Uh, they were a response to that opening. While those issues have become more salient, in some ways, the socioeconomic issues you've seen more convergence on, actually, um, sort of across classes. You know, you might say the middle. Well, um, a, a lot of what we're talking about, actually, is a sort of change to the middle class. I mean, we've if you talked about middle class 30 or 40 years ago, you you'd sort of have a picture of a a business person or a shopkeeper or somebody. Um, now you think of the middle class, you think of a, I don't know, you think of a, a professional, quite quite likely to be a sort of public a public service professional, someone who's likely to be um, quite social democratic, indeed, you know, likely to be a Labour voting, middle class Labour voter. So the middle class has become less conservative, less right wing, you might say. Uh, the working class has become less left wing, <laughs> to put it very crudely, partly because they had to, partly because the you know, the defensive institutions, particularly the trade unions of the working class, were essentially destroyed. Um, so, so it had no choice. Nonetheless, you, I mean, you know, if you, look, if you look at the sort of British social attitude, the value survey, so there has been a great convergence, actually, on socioeconomic issues. So it's sort of something to celebrate, even as those issues may have become less salient overall in our policy. Conservatives having won a large majority by vastly increasing state intervention in the economy. So are we now seeing, regardless of the position of COVID, have we seen the centre ground sort of emerge around uh, a larger, more interventionist state? And, but David, you've talked about something called post-liberalism. So I don't know whether the, the two go together, but if you could explain what that is and whether the sort of issue of greater state interventionism might be a, a useful sort of segue into talking about post-liberalism. Yeah, I mean, post-liberalism is, is, I mean, it's sort of, it's a kind of cousin of communitarianism, you might say. It's, it, it has two, two strands in the two big parties, that were one, some, you know, the blue Labour strand in Labour, the red Tory strand in, um, in the Tory party, both of which are sort of somewhat post-liberal. I mean, it, so it's, I mean, post-liberals tend tend to be, you know, they're modern people. I mean, they, they accept, you know, all, all, you know the, the, the rules of, uh, of modern liberalism, including, um, you know, all the great equalities, um, you know, the, the great liberalisation and, the, and, the, and you know, equality, gender, race, sexuality, and so on. Those, those are not in question, although I think there is, there, post-liberalism certainly is, is critical of some of the kind of excesses of, of identity politics and tends to, um, you know, tends to be quite critical of, of the kind of individualism of our politics. It tends to, to think in terms of, you know, the importance of belonging and community and, um, and, 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 and a kind of emotion in politics too, a kind of recognition of the, uh, the importance of emotion. And it's not all just about, um, you know, whether we're going to be, uh, you know, 50 pounds a, uh, a month better off or, um, you know, that very economistic, utilitarian 
uh, approach that we saw in the Remain campaign, one of the sort of failings of the Remain campaign in a way, I think. So that, you know, in some ways we are, we are in a sort of post-liberal era in that we're a little bit to the left, a little bit more you know, compared to the, the sort of pre, compared to the, the, the sort of the double liberalism from kind of major through to certainly through to Cameron Osborne, um, that, that we are now a little bit to the left of that um, economically and a little bit to the right of it culturally, perhaps. I mean, you know, not so sanguine about about social fluidity. More more important, you know, recognizing that people want security. They want they want relatively stable live, live in relatively stable neighbourhoods. You know, with, they they want newcomers to the country to be well integrated and to you know, broadly speaking join the club and um, all those kinds of things. Um, so I think, yes, there is that. Um, I mean, it's what I call, I mean, it's, you know, Daniel Bell, the famous American um, political scientist, was asked for his political credo back and he's dead now, I think, think sometime in the 1980s or 90s by a journalist. And he said, I'm a, I'm a social democrat in economics, I'm a liberal in politics, and I'm somewhat conservative in social and cultural matters. I call that the kind of hidden majority. It's been the hidden majority in our societies, to some extent symbolised by somebody like Dominic Cummings, you know, who is not a conservative, even though he's, he's obviously a crucial figure in this conservative government. But I suspect, you know, we're just reading some of what he's written. I mean, he's, he's, he's and he's, you know, he's real genuine concern about um, levelling up and regional inequality. You know, he's clearly, that puts him somewhat to the left of the, of the conservative mainstream of recent decades while also, you know, being a Brexit, um, you know, sovereignist, he believes in, in, in the importance of national sovereignty, as I think probably most post liberals do too. So I think, yeah, I think, I think one could, one could describe. And, and yet, of course, none of these things completely fit. I mean, you know, I mean, Boris Johnson is not, you know, he's a rather kind of flamboyant, um, liberal of a, of a more conventional kind, you might say. But I think perhaps he's, you know, his political antenna has, has led him to, to see that you know the 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 kind of world view of the the kind of Michael Goves and Dominic Cummings is you know is the way to go you know if if he wants not not only to win elections but you know in a, in a sense to kind of move the country on to the to the next stage that is our destiny all right well let's just talk in closing about party politics then so i just want to add to what you've said some recent work that's come out from based on the British election study and by the UK in the changing Europe which shows that on the liberal to authoritarian scale all voters are somewhat to the right in this case to slightly more authoritarian than conservative MPs and are to the right this is all voters are somewhat more authoritarian than Everyone in the Labour Party, that's MPs, that's party members, and that's sort of voters. But on economics, all voters are to the left, as in left economically, of the Conservative Party, whose MPs are way, 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 way off to the right economically. And the voters as a whole are much closer to Labour MPs, party members, and specifically sort of Labour voters, and one of the, the questions is whether or not they think, voters think that economy is stacked against them, there's one rule for the rich mm. and one rule for the poor. So I think that very much speaks to some of the things that you talked about, being voters as a whole being sort of a bit to the left economically and a bit to the arguably right sort of 
contrary. So, Steve, let's just talk party politics briefly at the end. Um, are the Tories now the party of the working class as much sort of culturally as economically? I see that you can make an argument for that in, in, in the sense you just sort of made it. But I, I wonder in a strange way whether the working class are still a little bit politically homeless because, of course, the Conservative Party for a long time has been and probably still is the party of the party of business, the party of the relatively free market. Uh, I was in a conversation on Twitter of all things last night, and we were distinguishing between sort of Tory Keynesianism and socialism. And of course, the the line we got to was that the sort of conservative Keynesianism is really just about propping up the capitalist system rather than making progressive sort of changes. And that's a little bit, little bit of an, of a, of an aside. I, I think that the it might be more true to say that Labour's lost the sort of so-called working class, and the Tories are a natural home for them for them now, because as you say, that they're, they're not really a a perfect fit on the economic side of things, um, even though a bit closer perhaps on, on culture. That's just my my sense. David, have you got anything you'd like to, to sort of add as we finish? Um, I mean, I think there's a sort of sense in which we're, we're kind of, we're all floating voters now. Well, I mean, they're, they're obviously sort of core committed voters, both on centre-left and centre-right, to use the old language, but, but they're a, sm- a much smaller core than they used to be. I mean, I think, you know, a lot of the red wall voters are kind of lending their votes to the Tory party. They, they necessarily remain loyal. I mean, if, if Labour can purge the, um, you know, the, the kind of momentum Corbynista element of the party and return to something more like a kind of, you know, moderate centre-left social democratic party, then that then may create some sort of counter reaction. Yeah. I mean, the Tory party has become a kind of social democratic or sort of Christian democratic party that's you know a little bit to the left economically, a little bit more to the right culturally of its previous manifestation, and if we got a, we got a kind of moderate social democratic Labour Party, then well, politics is going to become very boring again, and may create some counter reaction. But that may not be a bad thing, I mean, you know. And perhaps then there will be a new centre, you know, a new centre ground will have been established that is a little bit to the left economically and a little bit to the right culturally, which actually you know a substantial majority of the population will feel quite comfortable with. And then it is just a matter of uh, you know, as it was perhaps in the 50s, 60s, 70s, you know, you chuck one lot out because you think they're going to be a bit more competent, essentially managing the same system. You know, we're in a kind of period of flux, perhaps, between, you know, the, well, there was the kind of, there was the Butzkalite post-war period, then there was the kind of hyper-globalisation, double liberalism period, and now we may be moving into something more of a sort of post-liberal compromise. And I mean, I, and, I, I, and I wouldn't exaggerate the importance of the culture wars. I think the culture wars are sort of, you know, people in the in the media love them, obviously. You know, but you know, but I think they're sort of. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I may be I may be wrong about this. They're, they're not exactly ephemeral. And I mean, you know, sort of culture and identity and values are obviously now central to politics. But some of the man's um, debate, even some of the kind of, I mean, I think the BLM thing will will at least in this country, perhaps not in America, turn out to be partly a sort of function of of lockdown in a way of uh, you know of, of the kind of you know people just wanting to let off some political steam. Um, I think interestingly on, on, we touched on it earlier, I know, but I'm just on BLM. Uh, I think part of it may be a sort of um, almost a kind of growing pain, almost a sort of uh, a, a, a sign of success in some ways, a growing pain of the new black middle class. Um, we know we now have, I think, 35% of black Caribbean men are now in the top two social classes. I mean, it's true that uh, the black minority in Britain has done 
less well economically and professionally and educationally than, uh, say, British Indians or British Chinese. Uh, but that is perhaps beginning to change. You get a higher proportion of black people are now going to university than white people. We have a problem, which is that we've we've raised people's expectations. I mean, all people. I mean, um, you know, black, white. Um, you, you know, people have been promised that university education is a sort of panacea that you, you go to a university and you and you are kind of guaranteed a well-paid, you know, high, highly high-status, well-paid professional job. And the economy is no longer generating those jobs. Indeed, AI is coming for those jobs. So we're going to have a, you know, the knowledge economy turns out not to need very many knowledge workers. Um, so I think there is a degree of frustration. And some people put the the kind of the, the Corbynista flurry partly down to the frustrations of a kind of new generation of graduates, often in many cases, first in their family ever to go to university, or often from working class, low middle, back, middle class backgrounds, going to university, and then finding they're not getting the jobs that uh, they, they had sort of thought that their new educational status uh, was going to lead to. And I think you're seeing perhaps the same thing amongst uh, amongst young black people, perhaps particularly in London. And and they, of course, you know, they have a they have a story to explain the, this disappointment, which which is racism. Whereas the kind of the you know the white kids who are joining Momentum ha- had a different story, which was more to do with with um, economic inequality. So I mean that that is something we are definitely going to have. I mean, we're, we're going to have to sort out. You know, what 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 do we actually do um, now that we don't need such a big sort of cognitive class? What are people going to do, and are they going to feel sort of good about themselves doing it? Thank you, David. That's been really, really, uh, really fascinating run through of some of the sort of historical and political processes that have sort of underpinned the last couple of decades. Uh, Steve, have you got anything you'd like to finish with? Not, not very much, but um, at least I think um, from what David was just saying, there, there is a slightly more positive story than the very sort of miserable bleakness we maybe had in the last few months, which is actually that um, uh, that some of this is actually impatience for things and some of it's, it's a, a positive kind of uh, movement that's happened because we actually have made some progress and hopefully we'll, we'll make, make some more. Having spoken to Sunder Ketwala and Royfield, I hope we wouldn't be, I wouldn't be sort of mischaracterising their views to say that that seems to be, to a certain extent at least, Sunder sort of quite explicitly that it is a, an impatience that while things have improved, they have still not improved fast enough or far enough and that there is sort of a way to go and an impatience with getting there. But David, you wanted to come in. Well, I, mean, I, was just sort of, I was just sort of thinking we haven't really talked too much about the, the kind of impact of COVID on our politics. And I think, mm. you know, yeah. uh, I mean, we've got a government that's still got another four years in power, uh, even though they haven't covered themselves in glory over the management of the crisis. I mean, it seems pretty unlikely that they're going to be removed anytime soon. Uh, but I think in terms of, I mean, you, you can sort of, you, I think, make an argument that both, that it will reinforce what we were talking about earlier, which is this kind of post-liberal, a little bit to the left economically, a little bit to the right culturally, because it's been, COVID has both been a very, in some ways, a very sort of culturally conservative moment. It's been the, uh, you know, it's been absolutely the hour of the nation state right across Europe. Uh, you know, European Union countries just started closing their borders without consulting each other or consulting Brussels. You know, it was kind of the nation state was absolutely back in charge. It's back in charge in terms of the way it's, it's closed the, the economy and then kind of uh, and then supported people 
through the you know through collective provision i mean it's been it's also been a kind of uh, you know you could say it's been a sort of localist it's been a period of kind of localism the family has been reinforced no doubt not always happily but i think you know, a lot of people have been sort of forced to think about you know who who and what is most important to them in the course of the crisis and that often ends up being quite a sort of small c conservative response but on the other hand you could also say that it's it's kind of reinforced a kind of uh, quite a social democratic sort of public service, public sector ethos. After all, this has been a crisis centred on, on, the, on the National Health Service, on, on health services across Europe, and the, you know, the, the heroes have been health professionals. And as I was saying earlier, I mean, this is, you know, these, these are people who tend to be, you know, they have a vested interest in, in, in high public spending. They tend to be it's the sort of social democratic wing of the, of the middle class, um, you might say. So, um, Sorry. Yeah, so when I think... Yeah. So I just wanted to, to add something that, that, and there's research that's shown that a lot of the desire to comply with things around sort of lockdown regulations and distancing is not necessarily the harm that would come to themselves or to others, but the fear of sort of letting down the group, the community, mm. and being sort of reprimanded by that community, which I think speaks to some of the solidarity mm. that we talked about earlier on. So, I, again, that speaks to the sort of social democratic element and the nation state, yeah. which I think, as John Denham would argue, I think, go together to to have that sort of to focus on the group, the group that you belong to and is the group that you feel solidarity with. And that's how you implement sort of progressive change. And I think we've certainly seen some elements of that in the response to COVID. Okay. Well, David, thank you so much for your time. This has been fascinating. Good to chat. Thanks very much for asking me. Oh, an absolute pleasure. Steve, thank you very much for your time, as always. This has been the No Man's Land podcast. I'm Martin Rogers, Steve O'Neill, and our very special guest, David Goodhart.